Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Missionary Enterprise, with a message titled, A Most Peculiar Open Door. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14, verses 19 to 28, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The book of Revelation records Jesus' message to the seven churches in the province of Asia, and as he's addressing the church in the ancient city of Philadelphia, Jesus says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, and that's an image. Jesus has opened a door, and in our day, the image of an open door is the image that all obstacles have been removed. I mean, sometimes we use a different image. We say, everything is smooth sailing. That is, no storms stand in the way. Opposition is gone. You know, in terms of the open door, all you have to do is walk through it. The pathway is cleared. Just go. Grab hold of the future because it's now yours. But here the context is everything. If Jesus meant to convey to the church in Philadelphia that it was smooth sailing from now on, well, then he wouldn't have said the other things that he also said to that church. I mean, for one, he commends that church that they have kept his word about patient endurance. Now, how does patient endurance, which speaks about, you know, weathering the hardships or to use our sailing example of weathering fierce and stormy seas and not giving up. I mean, that's the image of patient endurance. See, I raise this issue because the text we're going to study today contains the words that God had opened to Paul and Barnabas an open door. You know, I'll get to that in due time, but that phrase that these two missionaries had witnessed an open door to reach the Gentiles, well, it didn't mean it was clear sailing. They, it turns out, had to do a lot more than simply walk through the open door. And that brings to my mind the realization that very few things in this life come about without the requirement of sacrifice and suffering. You know, I have four post-high school degrees, and I assure you that required of me a great many sleepless nights. Others, perhaps, you're one of them. You know, you grew a business from ground level up, and as you now think about how successful your business has become, perhaps you're like so many in which you say, you know, if I had known the price I'd have to pay to get it here, I'm just not sure I would have started. I mean, don't you know that sometimes said also about raising kids? I mean, those of you who've raised them will know that more sacrifice was required of you than you had ever had imagined. Now, if that's true, In the everyday endeavors of life, I mean, how much more so do you think it's true when engaged in the work of winning men and women to faith in Christ? If you want to invade the evil one's dark fortress and rescue his captives and deliver them into the kingdom of light, do you think that such an endeavor would not demand the greatest of all prices? And so when Jesus opens the door, we must not think that an open door indicates clear sailing or that fierce battles and great sacrifices are not required. They are required. The kind of door that Jesus opens is a peculiar one, to say the least. It's a door that promises that walking through the door will, if we're obedient, yield wonderful results. But the cost, well, that's going to be great. We've been following Paul's first missionary journey. It begins with the church in Syrian Antioch commissioning he and Barnabas and sending them out. Then, as we've seen, they start in Cyprus, sail north to the mainland and head up to Pisidian Antioch. And from there, they enter the province of Galatia. First, they minister in Iconium, which, as we've seen, even though Paul and Barnabas won many to faith in Christ, there was a plot underfoot. 
inspired by you know, passionate hatred coming from the leadership of the synagogue, either to do the missionary team great harm or to actually kill them. And so although many have been one to faith in Christ and a church has been begun, we have last left our missionary team as they're fleeing for their lives. And they've come to Lystra, a city where there is no Jewish synagogue, and they did encounter success, but also encountered a clash of two very different worldviews. Rather than when Paul healed a lame man who had been lame since birth, rather than seeing that as a sign of the authentic ministry that they present, that Jesus really is alive and that the living God is among them, the crowd thinks that Paul is Hermes and Barnabas is Zeus. They want to offer sacrifices to them and worship them. It's been hard, but one would think that progress is being made. I mean, people in Lystra are coming to trust in Jesus and to follow him. The door is open, and then something horrible happens. So we read Acts 14, 19 to 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, we've seen that in both Pisidian Antioch and in Iconium, it was the Jewish synagogue, leaders in that community, who can only be described as religious bigots who are breathing out hatred and ready to do violence. At Pisidian Antioch, the Jews incited persecution against them in the city, and they were expelled. Well, that might seem bad, but it got worse in Iconium. There were threats to do physical harm. But now, even though there's no Jewish synagogue in Lystra, the Jewish leadership decides to incite mob violence. I mean, if these two men, Paul and Barnabas, are not leaving the province of Galatia, we're just going to kill them. So it needs to be said that this is the very first experience Paul ever had with physical violence directed at him. Clearly, the stones must have hit him in the head, and undoubtedly he was knocked out and assumed to be dead. And Paul would remember this experience. When writing to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11.25, he says that he was stoned on one occasion. He's referring to what happened at Lystra. But let's read what Paul later said to the Galatian Christians. Remember, it's most likely that Paul wrote the Galatian letter shortly after this trip. And in Galatians 6 verse 17, he writes, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I've often heard people give all manner of strange and bizarre explanations of this verse. I mean, one explanation is taken from the Greek word for marks, which is the word stigmata. You know, in the theology of some, God grants special saints the gift of a stigmata on their flesh in some fashion showing that they belong to Christ. But such explanations are divorced from the historic context of Galatians. The marks of Christ are no doubt the bodily wounds that Paul sustained when he was stoned at Lystra. So it seems quite likely that there were permanent scars that stayed with him for the rest of his life. He called these marks the marks of Jesus. That is, these are the wounds that have come from being a follower of Jesus. Well, nonetheless, after he was stoned and left for dead, he revived, got up, and went back in the city. And that act, I have to assume, took a great deal of courage. It may also be that at this point, the new converts in that city made every effort to protect him, but Paul knew that their protection wouldn't last long. And so the very next day, he and Barnabas go further down the road until they reach the Galatian city of Derby. And I have to assume that the journey must have been a very painful journey for Paul. His wounds were still raw, and every step must have been difficult. Nonetheless, they arrived wounded and shell-shocked, ready for their next missionary assignment, and by all accounts, it would be a fruitful one indeed. 
The door was still wide open if they just go through it. And go through it, they did. So let's read Acts 14, 21 to 23. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So let's take what Luke now tells us one step at a time. Of all the places where Paul goes, what actually happened at Derby? well, it's hardly mentioned outside of just one line. They made many disciples. Yeah, the door was wide open. Paul, no doubt, was still struggling with the effects of the stoning. I assumed he had a concussion and all the attendant problems that go along with it, including things like headaches and fatigue and dizziness and insomnia, and perhaps even the memory problems and the concentration problems that go along with it. And yet in the midst of all of this, even still, we find that God is granting him success. Men and women are coming to Christ and not just a few. Luke says they made many disciples there. And since Luke doesn't mention that the Jews followed him there, we have to assume that for the first time, even though he's struggling with his wounds, Paul is enjoying a ministry of peace. He's free to win people to faith. He no doubt preaches the gospel openly and wins converts and excites no mob response. When I think of these days for Paul, I have to think that if Paul would have heard the, you know, the triumphalistic language that sometimes gets traded you know, in our circles today, well, he would be very angry with us indeed. You know what I mean? I mean, when we claim victory over all of our problems, I mean, people say, you know, just take your stand against the evil one and watch all your adversaries flee. That's what some say. Cast out the problems in the name of Jesus. I understand that you're a king's kid and nobody can touch you. What a horrible misunderstanding of what Jesus meant when he said that he has set before us an open door. Whatever Jesus meant, he certainly didn't mean that his servants wouldn't be ministering the gospel without the effects of a concussion and the marks on his body that would never go away. But then, how could we be surprised by that? I mean, after all, didn't Jesus himself suffer? Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We don't know how long Paul and Barnabas stayed in Derby. I mean, I assume that they stayed long enough to form a church and for leadership to be put in place, and surely that occurred. But they probably also stayed long enough so that Paul is again in a place where he can, with some degree of safety, resume his travels. And at this time, 
It must also have been that the two men decided that for now it was time to go home. But rather than finding transportation to go home directly, and you get out a map, you're gonna see that the, you know, the shortest distance to go home would be that they would continue to go east around the end of the Mediterranean Sea and then south to Syria and Antioch. Instead of doing that, the two men make a decision. They won't go straight home. That would be irresponsible. They're still believers in all of these places. Paul and Barnabas have left these places in a hurry. And what would become of the believers who were there? Those of you who do not know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, you owe it to yourself to read his biography. Eric Metaxas has, in my estimation, written the very best biography of this remarkable man. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor living in Germany during the time when Adolf Hitler came to power. To make matters even more complicated, Bonhoeffer came from an elite German family. His mother was a direct descendant of Kaiser Wilhelm, and his father held a post as the head of psychiatry at the prestigious University of Berlin. But from the very outset, Bonhoeffer had openly said, in a way that the entire country would hear, that no man deserved to be called Führer except Jesus and Jesus alone. Further complicating his situation is that Bonhoeffer had a twin sister who had married a Christian Jew. And I don't need to tell you that these were very bad times for Jews. You know, I won't repeat the entire story, but Bonhoeffer was at one point in time studying in the USA. And he could have remained there. And he could have found a congregation that would have been eager to have him. And he could have carried out the rest of his life in relative peace, but he couldn't. He was inspired by Jesus' words in John 10 that it was the hireling who ran away and abandoned the flock when the wolf showed up. And in Bonhoeffer's estimation, the wolf had shown up in Germany. And so realizing that his decision might cost him his life, he traveled back to Germany so as not to abandon confessing Christians there. And I'm not giving the story away when I say that he was eventually arrested and placed in the Flossenburg concentration camp and there, as the Allied guns could be heard in the background, ready to liberate the city. Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, gave orders to quickly hang Bonhoeffer. And so with the Allied guns in the background, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung, of all things, most cruelly, with a piano wire. But the Good Shepherd never runs away when the wolf is coming after the sheep. And Paul and Barnabas must have felt the same way. Luke simply says they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And I have to wonder about their conversation before they decided to do that. Did they talk about Jesus' words about the Good Shepherd? Were they tempted not to go back? I mean, how did they handle the natural fear of death, a fear that we all have? And did they talk about the wide open door which the Lord had opened up for them? I mean, whatever their conversation was, they retraced their steps and went right back into the lion's den. I mean, after all, had not God opened a door? And then Luke tells us that the two men decided on agenda when they got back. You know, because of the political climate, it would have been impossible for them to have open and public evangelistic meetings as before. I mean, those doors, at least for the moment, were closed. But since they did not bemoan which doors weren't open, and they would look for doors which were open, they simply went forward. You know, the first thing they did, says Luke, was to strengthen the souls of the disciples. And that means, of course, that Paul and Barnabas had not been given the time that they would have liked to disciple these believers. Yeah, these believers would have had to go over the basics. They would have to know something of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as well as the forgiveness that was assured to them. But there were other things as well that Paul and Barnabas were convinced these believers needed right now. And the first 
is the encouragement to remain faithful. Luke says they encourage them to continue in the faith, and that means keep on believing the promises of God that are made in Christ. Continue to be obedient to Jesus. The Christian faith is not a one-time event. It is required of us that we continue in the faith, that we make progress in the faith, that we constantly renew our hearts in the faith, that we learn more and more about what is ours in Christ and what it means to fully know him. See, that matter is so very important. I mean, before I end this series, I will take one teaching showing what Paul wrote these believers in the book of Galatians. There he is concerned, deeply concerned, that they were being bewitched false teachers had arrived on top of the persecution that they were undergoing. And so in Galatians, Paul wants them to know that it was possible for them to begin in faith and then drift towards a doctrine of works. See, the only way that churches will endure is that they are firmly grounded on a biblical doctrinal foundation and that they be taught to recognize error when it comes to them and to know how to contradict it. And so these new believers needed to get as much basic Christianity under their belts as they could. That's not only true for them. See, it's true for us. I have on many occasions helped take a group of people through an introduction to the sum total of Christian belief. And I have in many cases found believers who have been Christians for years and then have confessed to me that they've never been established in the basics of the faith. And that's a matter of great concern. I mean, failure to be established leaves one open to either endless rabbit trails or false teaching. And so Paul and Barnabas want to be clear what these believers need. They need to continue in the faith. But then they add a second matter about basic discipleship. They need to know that they will only enter the kingdom of God, and here they mean our eternal abode in heaven, that they will only enter that through many tribulations. These believers need to be armed with the news that suffering awaits them at many times. They need to count Jesus and his gospel to be worth whatever difficulties and sorrows and disappointments and financial loss and the hatred of others that it might bring. And so that's the first thing that they do as they revisit all their churches. They want to make sure that the believers are on a proper foundation. But there's a second matter that's equally important. They appoint elders in every church. Now, when one does a study on Paul's work in all the churches, you're going to find that appointing elders is of great importance to him. The New Testament only identifies two different leadership offices in the local church. It identifies elders and deacons, and that's it. The elders and the overseers, those two terms, are a reference to the same office. The elders are charged with overseeing the leadership of the local church, as well as teaching and preaching. And so knowing they are going to leave the area, Paul and Barnabas appoint elders. There are those who argue that the Greek word for appoint, well, that's a word that would include congregational involvement in the process. And so by the time we get to Paul's first letter to Timothy, and his letter to Titus, we're going to see that Paul had very distinct criteria as to how the elders were to be chosen. And finally, Luke says, after the two missionaries had done all these things, they committed each local church to the Lord and that they did so in a service that would have included prayer and fasting. No doubt as they announced that they must go, it must have been done with both a somber sense, but also with the hope that Jesus was the Lord of that local church. Then Luke summarizes for us the missionary work of Paul and Barnabas, Acts 14, 24 to 28. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. 
And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and there remained no little time with the disciples. You know, Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas left Galatia, and they passed through the region of Pisidia, and then came to the coastal region of Pamphylia and to the seaport town of Perga. There Paul preached, and then the two went into the adjoining town of Atalia, and from there they caught a ship, and eventually they came home to Syrian Antioch. The missionary journey is now over. How long have they been gone? Well, Luke doesn't tell us, but a great many scholars believe that it was two years. And you can imagine the reception that they received when they got home. I mean, no time church meetings were called. Everyone showed up and they said, tell us everything that happened. Don't leave anything out. We want to know it all. We don't know about how many meetings they had, but everything kept coming back to one central fact. God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Indeed, more Gentiles were coming into the faith than ever before, and they could hardly believe it. It was so wildly successful. And isn't it just like that? Whenever we're obedient to Christ, the fruit is always greater than we had expected. The door is open far wider than we had ever imagined, and no sacrifice that is required can compare to the opportunities that the Holy Spirit leaves open for us. May we see it just this way. Thanks, John. You know, I think for some there's an expectation that the life of a Christian should be, for a lack of a better term, a charmed life, where if we face difficulty, we must come against it and all will be well. I think we're misrepresenting the truth here, aren't we? Yeah, uh, Ben, that's absolutely correct. There are numerous, um, you know, churches, theologies that are about there that, you know, that, that teach exactly what you've just been saying and what I've been talking about in this message. You know, uh, you know, just stand against the name of Christ and you will lead that charmed life. And, and then what happens in these circumstances is that it, it, life doesn't turn out that way. Uh, God's plan for our lives is not that we would sail through life with ease, but rather that through suffering, we would come to depend on Christ, that we would discount the pleasure of this world and count the pleasures of Christ worthy of everything. So that is what's before us, and we need to teach God's people this truth. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Missionary Enterprise, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We're coming to the deadline for your opportunity to register for the Back to the Bible Canada 2022 Israel Experience. The time is drawing close and we're nearing capacity. So if you're thinking of joining us for the Holy Land Adventure from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Against Phil Calloway, musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, now's the time. Tour the Holy Land, walk where Jesus, Paul, David walked, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, and join together for a communion service at the Garden Tomb. The full Israel Experience itinerary is available online, and to ensure an intimate experience, event numbers are limited, so register soon. For more information, call one 800 
663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.